Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. All right. On today's episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast, I would like to welcome Dr. Dakshesh Patel. Dak is a gastroenterologist with GI Alliance of Illinois and also chief of gastroenterology and hepatology at Ascension St. Francis Hospital. He also serves as chairman of Ascension's GI Joint Operating Committee for the state of Illinois. Finally, he's a member of the GI Health Foundation and is one of the leading experts on congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency. Dak, thank you so much for taking the time today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate you having me. So for our non-medical listeners, can you tell us what is sucrase isomaltase deficiency? Absolutely. So CSID, um, or congenital sucrase isomaltase deficiency, was actually first described in uh, 1960 in the, in the medical journal, The Lancet. And uh, the authors of that article kind of described this congenital deficiency of sugar-splitting enzymes that resulted in diarrhea. We now know that enzyme is actually sucrase isomaltase. So essentially, this is the enzyme that you need to break down sugar and starch. Oh, wow. So it's a critical enzyme there. Now you mentioned congenital. So that means is there congenital and there's acquired? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll go into a little bit detail if, if you allow me. Um, so you're right. There's congenital, which we refer to as a primary cause of CSID. And then there's acquired, which we refer to as a secondary cause. Um, so regarding congenital, um, this is this enzyme that I spoke of, sucrase isomaltase. Um, so that is, and, and forgive me, I'm going to kind of break uh, out some biochemistry here. Okay, <laughs> um, but um, sucrase isomaltase, it's, it's an enzyme that's uh, encoded by a really long 100 kilobase sucrase isomaltase gene. And it is synthesized in the rough endoplasmic reticulum of the enterocytes and then transported through the Golgi apparatus and finally expressed on the apical surface of the enterocytes, where it's then cleaved by pancreatic peptidases into sucrase and isomaltase. Now, there are over... Um, 2,000 mutations involving this gene, 880, which are classified as, you know, pathogenic. So depending on the mutation that you inherit, um, you know, you can have a defective folding of that protein or the inability of that protein to be expressed um, through the Golgi apparatus or, or onto the enterocytes. Um, and if you have the same mutation inherited from both your mom and dad, you're going to be deemed to be homozygous for this disease-causing mutation. And those individuals generally will present in the pediatric population as failure to thrive. There's also a characteristic diaper rash that goes along with that. And then those that inherit a different mutation from both their mom and dad are going to be compound heterozygotes. Now, we theorize that about 70% of those with CSID are actually compound heterozygotes. And that's often why these individuals will often present later on in life, like in their 20s and 30s, and start kind of opting for that sugar-free option. So, so that's the congenital aspect of it, right? Now, the acquired aspect is, well, first you need to understand that the, these enzymes, these brush border digestive enzymes, which by the way, consist of not only sucrase and isomaltase, but also maltase. And 60% of all maltase activity is actually encoded by that same sucrase isomaltase gene. And lastly, you, you also have lactase as well, right? Which 
everyone's familiar with since the majority of adult Americans have some degree of lactase deficiency. So you need to understand that these digestive enzymes are found in the brush border of the enterocytes. So anytime there's damage to that brush border, you're going to have a sloughing off of these digestive enzymes. So that damage could come from celiac sprue. It could come from Crohn's. It could come from allergic or autoimmune enteropathy or, you know, viral gastroenteritis, giardia, or most commonly SIBO right? Small intestinal vector overgrowth. So these are the, the main causes of having a deficiency of sucrase isomaltase deficiency, congenital or acquired. Interesting. I have not heard, I'll say Golgi apparatus and endoplasmic <laughs> in at least 15, maybe 20 uh, years. So I warned I'm, you, man. I I'm glad you. you brought that back. <laughs> so, so before we get into the symptoms, the acquired possibilities you just mentioned are very common. And I think many of our listeners, obviously the healthcare providers are listening and also the patients have heard those diagnoses, celiac, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, any sort of enteropathy, Crohn's disease. And you also mentioned when it's congenital, if, if there's the genes from both parents, then you're going to get early onset diagnosis and maybe that'll be a clearer finding, but absolutely if you have a gene from one of your parents. It may be your twenties and thirties before you see symptoms. And right. if the symptoms are from the sugars, basically not being digested or processed, then they're going to overlap with a lot of other symptoms that we commonly see in our 20, 30 year old GI patients. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. Um, you know, one of the points that you're making here is that there's several disease states that have the same presentation, right, in terms of symptoms, gas, bloating, loose stools. I mean, you know, that can happen with SIBO, as you mentioned. Um, that can happen with potentially exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, right? There's several disease states. Um, and and commonly, I guess everyone calls this IBS, you know, yeah. Um to me, and this is only my opinion, I, it may be controversial, but for, for me, IBS is almost like a label that we put for a constellation of symptoms. You know what I mean? I, I think that there's a danger sometimes in labeling people with IBS, is, is, and the danger is that you don't look any further, right? One of the things that I've discovered as I you know, really got into this disease state is that so many of my patients present with these symptoms and for so long they've been labeled with IBS and I'm able to, you know, not just guess, but do some testing, right. And, and find out their underlying, you know, cause of, of their symptoms. And when you can do that, the benefit is that the therapeutic effect that you have on the treatment is so much greater than if you were just to put a Band-Aid as if you were just going to prescribe a medication for their constipation or, or diarrhea. The benefit in those scenarios is generally at max 15% above placebo, right? So I am a strong believer in testing um, and, and really trying to get to the root cause. And studies have actually supported this. About 85% of the time, if you do some you know, testing, you're actually able to get to the root cause in these IBS patients. We're just not doing this as often, I think, as we should. I mean, I think that's fascinating. And I think that's when I was doing some prep work for today's episode, the symptoms that you talk about or you read up about when you talk about CSID overlap with, I would say, 60, 70% of you know the brain gut diseases that we commonly see in practice. Uh, and I'm with you. I think the term irritable bowel syndrome has value, but often can end up being a point of, I don't, I don't want to say confusion, but a point of frustration for both the patients and providers, because 
where do we go from there? And so I think what fascinated me when I was, you know, going to talk to you about this is that, oh, well, how many of my quote unquote IBS patients may have CSID? And so I think that leads me to my next question is how common is CSID and are we missing it? Yeah, no, it's it's quite common. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure if we discuss symptoms, um, you know, yeah, at all. Let, let, let me go back and just address that before we discuss prevalence a little bit. Fair enough. Um, yeah. yeah. So in terms of symptoms, you know, just to kind of go back um, to what we discussed earlier, there's a deficiency here, right, of sucrase isomaltase, whether that's congenital or choir, these patients literally don't have the enzyme they need to break down sugar and starch. So what happens is that sugar and starch, it goes undigested and ends up in their colon. There's a hundred trillion bacteria that live in our colon. So all that bacteria will ferment that undigested sugar and starch, and that fermentation will produce short-chain fatty acids, right? It also produces gas, hydrogen gas, carbon dioxide gas, which of course then leads to the gas and bloat, you know, symptoms that these patients present with. And then if they have archaea bacteria, right, that's going to produce methane gas, which we now know is tied to constipation. And then there's lots of studies suggesting that if you have hydrogen sulfide, you're going to, you know, have more diarrhea urgency, right? So what does this all sound like? It's, it's what we we're just discussing. It's gas, bloating, abdominal discomfort, constipation, diarrhea, this is IBS, right? So when you ask how they present, this is their presentation. So it's often mistaken for IBS or other you know, similar um, you know, conditions that kind of have, have the same presentation. And when you mentioned the gas bill of winter methane hydrogen, you also seeing the IBS SIBO overlap as well with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So yeah, a yep. lot of these symptoms, these presentations, the diagnoses are going to overlap. Um, so let's yeah. talk prevalence. Yeah. So in terms of prevalence, um, the majority of the studies that we have really are in the pediatric uh, literature. And without going into so much detail, um, you know, I'll just give you some figures. Um, the, the prevalence rates that we've seen amongst those studies are about 7 to 9%. Um, and those are mostly retrospective studies. For the first time, we are now starting to have trials done to look at prevalence in adult Americans. And the, there was a recent study that was just published by um, Dr. You know, Bill Chain Brooks Cash, and they studied 154 adult Americans, and they found that the prevalence for this disease state was 7%. That was one in 15, essentially. Wow. So to give you a perspective of what this means do you well you you know but i would you know generally ask the the you know general audience out there the prevalence for celiac sprue you know what i mean like we're told by the aga right uh, from the 2020 guidelines that every patient that walks into your office with ibsd or chronic diarrhea should be tested for celiac sprue but what's the prevalence the prevalence is actually 0.4% and this was actually by another study from, you know, Bill Che and, and Brooks Cash. And that 0.4% was in the general population as well as amongst the IBS population. So compare that 0.4% to the numbers that I've listed of 7 to 9%, 9%. I mean, this disease state is so prevalent. It's, it's unreal. And I can tell you that from firsthand experience. You know, I probably have tested and treated more than most, I think, out there. And it is out there. I promise you it's out there. And, and so, you know, the, the prevalence is, 
still needs to be studied. I think we need um, to better define a nomenclature associated with the CCD state, like the CSID versus SID. I think we need to validate some of the diagnostic modalities um, as well as gather more high quality epidemiologic data. And I think when we do that, we're really going to solidify the prevalence uh, being somewhere in the five to 10% range. And that's when I think the guidelines will start to really reflect, you know, the, the algorithm in terms of when we should be testing for this. Cause right now, you know, we don't have the data to necessarily state that you should be screening all your IBS patients for this disease state. Um, I do personally, just because I, I know that the prevalence is out there. But in, if you're going by evidence-based medicine, we don't have the data um, to, you know, make that recommendation yet. I think that in the coming years, with more studies being done, that we will have that data. And that is what's going to be reflected in the future guidelines. So how do you, or how do we test for this if it's truly 7 to 10% of our general patient population? So there's several ways. Um, I'll list all the ways and then I'll tell you kind of what's commonly done. So you'll have an invasive option and that's the disaccharidase assay. Um, and then there's non-invasive options, uh, which include breath testing, of which there are two. There's a hydrogen methane breath test and a carbon-13 sucrose breath test. Then you can do a sucrose challenge test, um, which is essentially where you take four tablespoons of sugar, mix it into four ounces of water, mix it up and drink and see if you explode. <laughs> and if you do, then it, it's positive. Uh, so that test is very simple. It's easy. Anybody can do it right now at home. And it actually states it's th theoretically sensitive. But what's interesting is there's just a recent study that was just done showing that it's actually sensitive. Um, somebody studied this and it was actually about 87% sensitive, which I thought was quite interesting. Wow. But Beyond that, you could do genetic testing as well. Um, genetic testing is more relegated to research, um, I think, more so because it's really not readily available. The cost is generally around, you know, six to $800. And keep in mind, as I talked to you earlier, there's 2,000 mutations, 880 are pathogenic. Commercially, we're only testing 37. So if you happen to have a positive test, great, you've clinched the diagnosis. If not, doesn't mean that you don't have it. You know what I mean? 37 um, out of 2,000 possibilities. Correct. Okay. That's what we're testing for commercially. Um, and, and so it's not you know, a great test. It's not really available. And then lastly, you could have a therapeutic trial of, of the enzyme given to the patient. However, that outside of a research trial is not available. So in terms of how you actually test for it, it mostly comes down to two things. One is a carbon-13 sucrose breath test. This is a test that's completely free to both the provider and to the patient. So, you know, we can talk about how that works, but uh, essentially it's, it's like any other breath test. They consume a sugar solution. And uh, in this particular case, if they have the enzyme, um, then it gets broken, that sucrose into glucose and fructose. The glucose gets absorbed through the Krebs cycle. Sorry to bring that back up. Converted to- We're going to go back to uh, uh, <laughs> it's converted to acetyl-CoA pyruvate and CO2 is released as a byproduct of that. And then that CO2 is carbon-13 labeled, right? So it gets absorbed to the blood, expired out through the lungs and measured by mass spectrophotometry. And any value that's below baseline is going to be considered low sucrose uh, activity. And you generally you know, get this result in about a, a seven to 10 days after giving that kit to the patient, which they do at home, by the way. Um, so that's the, the easy option, right? Um, the invasive option is the EGD with disaccharase assay. Um, and I'm actually 
in the process of creating a video on how to perform this because there's nothing out there at all. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people don't actually know about this disease state. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen around it, especially given the prevalence. Um, and then this is going to be really key because literally I've had to go through articles to figure out the right way to do this. And um, I had the privilege of talking to a bunch of pediatric GI doctors, and I was shocked that there was discrepancy in terms of how they did it amongst themselves. So I'm going to try to put out a video, and hopefully that can help to standardize how this is done. Because if you don't do it correctly, you can certainly you know, have a lot of false positives and false negatives. So um, stay tuned you know, for that. But th- those are the methods in which we can test for this disease state. Yeah, I can imagine possibility if obviously we don't want to jump to the invasive endoscopic testing, but for the number of endoscopies we do do for these symptoms that we mentioned earlier, if we get to increase the yield of the upper endoscopy with this additional testing, that could be a game changer. That That's absolutely true. So I don't, if a patient comes in and I'm suspecting this disease state, I generally go with a breath test. However, if I'm going to be doing an upper scope for some other reason, I will definitely forego the breath test and do the disaccharides assay, which is basically collecting samples from the small bowel at the time of EGD. So let's shift gears from testing to therapy. Now, you mentioned earlier, this is a condition that affects nutrient absorption, right? Sugar absorption. So I'm assuming the first step could be dietary changes. Yes. Yes. Um, So simply put, these patients don't have the enzyme they need to break down sugar. So if you don't have the enzyme to break down sugar, then simply avoid sugar. However, we live in America and 75% of our diet is ultra processed, which means added sugars. And so this becomes a ridiculously restrictive diet that no one's going to be able to comply with. So that's when enzyme replacement therapy in the form of sacrocytis oral solution comes in. This is basically an oral solution that's derived from Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is essentially baker's yeast, right? And that's been utilized forever to convert cane sugar into molasses, keep the center of cream-filled li- li- you know, candies liquid, like with Cadbury eggs. So that's essentially the, the treatment um, when somebody is diagnosed with this disease state. Now, if, say, somebody has a condition and we don't treat it, you know, are there long-term sequelae? Like, you know, for example, celiac disease, you don't avoid gluten. There is long-term sequelae. You can get more small bowel pathology. Anything like that with SID or CSID? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love that you called it SID and CSID. That, I, I, <laughs> I am hoping that we, in the future, start to change that nomenclature. Um, but um, to answer your question, there are no known long-term sequelae of having this disease state. Right. Um, so, however, it can certainly affect the quality of your life. Um, and there's direct, you know, healthcare uh, dollars associated with, you know, loss of productivity and whatnot uh, with that. But what I would say is that, you know, if you truly understand the pathophysiology of how this works, um, if you don't diagnose this, then you're having a patient consume sugar and starch, but not being able to break down their sugar and starch. So if they have SIBO, it's only going to perpetuate the SIBO, right? Because you're only feeding yeah. this bacteria sugar and starch. And, and on that same token, you know, these patients may have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So now they don't have, you know, amylase to break down starch. And so it's the same thing. It, you're feeding, you know, uh, 
the starch to the bacteria and just perpetuating SIBO. So if I don't think if you don't diagnose these conditions, then I think the SIBO, um, you know, may be a recurrent issue for patients. So it's something to keep in mind. Yeah, which is already a challenge for us as providers as it is. Absolutely. Yep. Dak, thank, thanks again for your time today. I mean, you, not only did you detail a disease state that many healthcare providers and patients are not that familiar with, but it may be one that's more prevalent than we realize, you know, especially at a seven to ten percent population, there is re- there's testing available. So this was fantastic. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, thank you so much, Neil. This was a blast. I uh, hope we can do it again. <laughs>